Chapter 18 of Muslin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lasanne Lavoy of Swansea, Illinois. Muslin by George Moore. Chapter 18. I wish Alice would make haste and not keep us waiting. I suppose she has got behind a crowd. Here are the scullies. Let's hide. They don't know a creature and will hang on us. Olive and Mrs. Barton tried to slip out of sight, but they were too late, and a moment after, looking immense in a train and bodice of lion's velvet, Mrs. Scully came up and accosted them. How do you do, Mrs. Barton, she said, with a desperate effort to make herself agreeable. I must congratulate you. Everyone is admiring your dress. I assure you, your train looked perfectly regal. I'm glad you like it, replied Mrs. Barton. But what do you think of Olive? Do you like her dress? Oh, Olive has no need of my praises. If I were not afraid of making her too vain, I would tell her that all Dublin is talking of her. Indeed, I heard a gentleman say, a gentleman who, I believe, writes for the papers, that she will be in the world or truth next week as the belle of the season. None of the other young ladies will have a chance with her. Oh, I don't know about that, exclaimed Mrs. Barton, laughing merrily. Haven't you got your violet, whom, by the way, you have transformed into a beautiful daisy? It will be, perhaps, not the rose nor the olive that will carry off the prize, but the daisy. Violet glanced sharply at Mrs. Barton, and there was hate in the glance, for although her mother did not, she understood well what was meant by the allusion to the daisy, the humblest of the earth's flowers. The appearance, however, of Lord Kilcarney brought the conversation to a close and not knowing how to address him, Olive laughed beautifully from behind her silver fan. They entered Patrick's Hall, where Lord Dungary, Lord Rosshill, and others were waiting to receive Mrs. Barton, who sought for a prominent seat, and dealing out pearly laughs and winsome compliments to her court, she watched Olive, who, according to orders, had taken Lord Kilcarney to sit on the highest of the series of benches that lined one side of the room, which she did, and for a moment Mrs. Barton felt as if she held Dublin under her satin shoe. Alice was her only trouble. What would she do with this gawk of a girl? But soon even this difficulty was solved, for Harding came up and asked her if he might take her to get an ice. How absurd we look dressed up in this way, said Harding. Look at that attorney and the court sword. It would be just as logical to stick a quill pen behind the ear of a fat pig. Well, the sword, I confess, I don't see much meaning in that. But the rest of the dress is well enough. I don't see why one style of dress should be more absurd than another, unless it is because it isn't the fashion. Yes, but that is just the reason. Just fancy dressing oneself up in the costume of a bygone time. And is everything that isn't the fashion ridiculous? Ah, there, I fancy, you have the best of the argument. 
Waiter, a strawberry ice. But did you say you would have strawberry? I don't think I did, for I prefer lemon. The center of the ceiling was filled with an oval picture representing St. Patrick receiving pagans into the true faith. The walls were white painted. The panels were gold listed. There were pillars at both ends of the room, and in a top gallery, behind a curtain of evergreen plants, Liddell's orchestra continued to pour an uninterrupted flood of waltz melody upon the sea of satin, silk, poplin, and velvet that surged around the buffet, angrily demanding cream ices, champagne, and claret cup. Every moment the crowd grew denser, and the red coats of the guards and the black-corded jackets of the rifles stained like spots of ink and blood the pallor of the background. A few young men looked elegant and shapely in the velvet and stockings of court dress. One of these was Fred Scully. He was with May, who, the moment she caught sight of Alice, made frantic efforts to reach her. "'My dear, did anyone ever look so nice? "'You are as sweet, well, a little sweeter, than you generally are. "'How do you do, Mr. Harding? "'And tell me, Alice, what do you think of my dress?' "'May was in cream file with ruchings of tulle. "'A beautiful piece of white lilac nestled upon her right breasts. "'You are very nice, May, and I think the white sets off your hair to advantage. "'Well,' Goodbye, dear. Fred and I are going into the next room. One is so pushed about here, but there are nice large velvet sofas there where one can sit and talk. I advise you to come. In the reposing shadows of rich velvet and somber hangings, women leaned over the sofas, talking to men in uniform, while two strange-looking creatures in long garments walked up and down the room. Dons from Trinity who argued with Mr. Adair earnestly. "'He is one of the lights of your county, is he not?' said Harding, indicating Mr. Adair. "'Oh, yes,' replied Alice. "'He took honors and a gold medal at Trinity College.' "'I know he did, and a capacity for passing competitive examinations is the best proof of a man's incapacity for everything else.' "'Do you know him?' "'Yes, a little.' He wears his university laurels at forty, builds parish schools, and frightens his neighbors with the liberality of his opinions and the rectitude of his life. But have you seen his pamphlets on the amalgamation of the poorhouses? said Alice, astonished at the slight consideration afforded to the rural genius. I have heard of them. It appears he is going in for politics, but his politics will be on a par with his sawmill and his farmyard in concrete. Mr. Adair is a well-known person. Every county in England, Ireland, and Scotland possesses and is proud of its Mr. Adair. Alice wondered for some moments in silence, and when suddenly her thoughts detached themselves, she said, We didn't see you in the ladies' drawing room. I was very busy all the morning. I had two articles to write for one of my papers and some books to review. How nice it must be to have a duty to perform every day, to have always an occupation to which you can turn with pleasure. I don't know that I look upon my ink bottle as an eternal haven of bliss, 
Still, I would sooner contribute articles to daily and weekly papers than sit in the Kildare Street Club drinking glasses of sherry. Having nothing to do must be a terrible occupation, and one difficult to fulfill with dignity and honor. But, he added, as if a sudden thought had struck him, you must have a great deal of time on your hands. Why don't you write a novel? Everybody can't write novels. Oh, yes, they can. Is that the reason why you advise me to write one? Not exactly. Did you ever try to write a story? No, not since I was at school. I used to write stories there and read them to the girls and... And what? Oh, nothing. It seems so absurd of me to talk to you about such things. You will only laugh at me just as you did at Mr. Adair. No, I assure you I am very loyal to my friends. Friends? I should have thought that friendship was a question of sympathy and not one of time, but I will withdraw the word. Oh, no, I didn't mean that. I am sure I am very glad. Very well, then. We will be friends. And now, tell me what you were going to say. I have forgotten. What was I saying? You were telling me about something you had written at school. Oh, yes, I remember. I did a little play for the girls to act just before we left. What was it about? What was it called? It was not original. It was an adaptation of Tennyson's Ballad of King Cofetua. You know Miss Gould. She played the king, and Miss Scully, she played the beggar maid. But, of course, the whole thing was very childish. At this moment, a figure in knee breeches and flesh-colored stockings was seen waving a wand at the far end of the room. He was the usher clearing the way for the vice-regal procession. The first to appear were the ADCs. They were followed by the medical department, by the private secretary, the military private secretary, the assistant undersecretaries, by the gentleman-in-waiting, the master of the horse, the dean of the chapel royal, the chamberlain, the gentleman usher, the comptroller, the state steward, walking with a wand like a doge in an opera bouffe. Then came another secretary, and another band of the underlings who flock about this mock court. And then came a heavy-built, red-bearded man who carried, as one might carry a baby, a huge gilt sword in his fat hands. He was followed by their excellencies. The long maroon-colored breeches preserved their usual disconsolateness. The teeth and diamonds retained their splendor, and the train, many yards of azure blue, richest duchess satin, embroidered with large bouquets of silver lily of the valley and trimmed with plumes of azure blue ostrich feathers and bunches of silver coral, was upheld by two tiny children who tottered beneath its enormous weight. Then another batch of ADCs in waiting, the ladies of the viceregal family, their excellency's guests, and the ladies in attendance, placed according to their personal precedence, brought up the rear of the procession. Doesn't real, actual life sometimes appear to you, Miss Barton, more distorted and unreal than a dream? I know it does to me. The spectacle we have just witnessed was a part of the ages that believed in the Godhead of Christ and the divine right of kings. 
but it seems to me strange that such barbarity should be permitted to loiter. But what has Christianity to do with the procession that has just passed? Were it not for faith, do you think a mock court would be allowed to promenade in that ludicrous fashion? I'm not sure it is faith that enables them to reverence the sword of the state. Is it not rather that love of ceremonial inherit in us all, more or less? Perhaps you are right. The conversation drifted back to literature. They talked for ten minutes, and then Alice suggested that it was time she should return to Mrs. Barton. Patrick's hall was still crowded, and champagne corks exploded through the babbling of voices. The squadron of distressed damsels had not deserted their favorite corner, and they waited about the pillars like cabs on a stand. At this hour, a middle-aged married doctor would be welcomed. All were desirous of being seen, if only for a moment, on the arm of a man. Mrs. Barton's triumph was cesarean. More than half a dozen old lords and one young man listened to her bewitching laugh and were fed on the brown flashing gold of her eyes. Milord and Rosshill had been pushed aside, and apart each sought to convince the other that he was going to leave town by the evening mail. Well in view of everyone, Olive had spent an hour with Lord Kilcarney. He had just brought her back to Mrs. Barton. At a little distance, the poor Scullies stood waiting. They knew no one. Even the Bartons had given them a very cold shoulder. Mrs. Gould, in an old black velvet dress, wondered why all the nice girls did not get married, and from time to time she plaintively questioned the passers-by if they had seen May. Violet's sharp face had grown sharper. She knew she could do something if only she got a chance. But would she get a chance? The ladies Cullen, their plank-like shoulders bound in gray frise velvet and steel, were talking to her. Suddenly, Lady Sarah bowed to Lord Kilcarney, and the bow said, Come hither. Leaving Olive, he approached. A moment after, he was introduced to Violet. Her thin face lit up as if from a light within. A gray cloud dimmed the light of Mrs. Barton's golden eyes, and when she saw him in the vestibule helping the scullies on with their wraps, she shuddered as if struck with a blast of icy wind. End of chapter 18 Recording by LaSanne Lavoie